Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. I am Lulu Gabu, with me in studio is Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, former M23 rebels set to return to the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan peace talks are due to resume next week. In economics, International Monetary Fund cuts global growth outlook and in sports news, South Africa win its second medal at the Commonwealth Games. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. France has sent a military unit to secure the site of the wreckage of an Air Algeria flight carrying 110 passengers and six crew members. The wreckage was found in Mali late yesterday, close to the border with Burkina Faso. French officials say the plane, which had 51 French nationals on board, was clearly identified despite being broken up. There have been no immediate reports of any survivors. France, Algeria, Burkina Faso and Niger took part in the search for the McDonnell Douglas. The airliner was on its way from Ouagadougou in Burkina Faso to Algiers when it disappeared. Mali's government and Tuareg-led rebels have signed an agreement for a roadmap towards securing a broader peace deal. The roadmap calls for negotiations to work out questions of substance before a second round of talks in October. They will discuss areas such as security, reconciliation and humanitarian issues. A final phase, a final peace agreement will be signed in Mali, but the roadmap gives no date for that last step. A female German tourist has been shot and killed in Kenya's coastal town of Mombasa. This brings to two the number of tourists shot in the town this month. Nobody has claimed responsibility for the attacks. Last month, the Somali-based militant group Al-Shabaab warned tourists to stay out of Kenya. Sarah Kimani reports. Police said the tourist in the company of a Kenyan male counterpart was shot at point-blank range in the city. The tourist town has witnessed several violent attacks, including shooting, bombings and grenade attacks, most of which have been blamed on Al-Shabaab. Early this month, a Russian tourist was shot and killed while touring the Fort Jesus, a tourist site in the region. The shootings are likely to lead to a further decline in the country's tourist arrivals, already affected by insecurity. In May this year, several Western nations issued travel advisories to their citizens, warning against all but essential travel to Mombasa. 
UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon says he's appalled by an attack on a United Nations-run school in the Gaza Strip that killed civilians and UN staff. The Gaza Health Ministry says at least 15 people have been killed and some 200 wounded. More than 140,000 Palestinians have fled 18 days of fighting between Israel and Gaza militants, many of them seeking shelter in buildings run by the UN Refugee Works Agency. Israel wants to stop Hamas, which rules Gaza, from fighting firing rockets into the country. South Africa will host the next international AIDS conference in the coastal city of Durban in 2016. It will be 16 years after the international conference held in Durban addressed by activist Child Nkosi Johnson and Nelson Mandela. Incoming president of the International AIDS Society, Chris Byra, says they are taking the conference to Durban because the KwaZulu-Natal province is the worst hit by the pandemic and great strides have been made in fighting HIV-AIDS. This is the place in the province, KwaZulu-Natal, with the highest HIV rate among women, and particularly among young women, of anywhere in the world. And we have always had a tradition with the International Aid Society that we try to put the conferences in places where it will make a difference. Durban is, the, is ground zero for women in HIV, and that's why we're, we're, we feel that it's so critically important to be there. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you. And it is 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa, rise and shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our top story, plans are at an advanced stage to return former M23 rebels still sheltered in Rwanda back to the Democratic Republic of Congo to face justice and be reintegrated into society. Outgoing envoy to the Great Lakes region, Mary Robinson, told Channel Africa in an exclusive interview that Kigali, which Kinshasa accuses of protecting M23 leaders wanted for war crimes, has promised to cooperate with the UN in the repatriation process. She could not, however, disclose who will be eligible for return and whether four top M23 leaders wanted for war crimes would be among them. Sarah Kimani reports. Many former combatants are held up in Uganda and Rwanda. Their repatriation is seen as key to ending DRC's cycle of armed rebellion. Kigali, Robinson says, is cooperating. Let me tell you that I have a very positive report of a recent meeting in Kigali and in other parts of Rwanda to look at the M23 who would be eligible to return and to uh, have a list of those who could return to the DRC. I know that this will not be um, easy, but if we don't do that, if we leave them in Rwanda and in Uganda, then I believe we could see an M24, M25 in the future because they will not be content and they will you know, want to address that issue in a different way. Whereas if they come back and they go through a process um, that is respectful, then I believe that this is better for peace. And there are issues. 
A peace deal reached after the defeat of M23 rebels stipulated that the fighters would receive amnesty on their return to the DLC. Robinson, however, believes there can never be peace without justice. She says the agreement is clear. Somebody must pay for the crimes committed in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, where more than 800,000 people have fled from fighting. I remember so well the mistakes of the past. I remember in 2006, I remember when uh, people were amnestied en masse and taken back into the army. Um, and we were determined, and I mean we, the special envoys, were determined to support the government of the DRC in saying, not this time. We have learned from our mistakes. We're not going to do it this time. It will be individual amnesty, and those who have committed crimes against humanity serious sexual crimes, child soldiers will not be amnestied. So um, that is very clear to me that, that those who need to be brought to justice should be brought to justice because that also is very important. Women have suffered the most atrocities, including rape and displacement, but she believes they hold the key to lasting peace. She insists on vigilance to ensure signed agreements are implemented to the letter. And I want everybody to continue to insist on full implementation of what governments promised, leaders promised under the uh, framework. The governments in January adopted a plan of action. It's visible, it's there. Um, I want civil society, women's groups to track it and hold their governments accountable. Failure to which she wants the country could slip back to war. From Nairobi, I am Sarah Kimani. The Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGA, that is mediating the South Sudan peace talks, has confirmed talks will resume on the 30th of July. IGAD has, however, called on the factions to strive to make progress in the coming phase of negotiations or else it will be forced to administer punitive measures against them. The talks are between the government of South Sudan and a rebel faction loyal to the country's former vice president. President Rick Macha. Coletta Wanjohi reports from Addis Ababa in Ethiopia. Peace talks between the government of South Sudan and the rebel faction led by former Vice President Riek Machar began in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa in January this year. In April this year, the South Sudan peace talks were adjourned by the mediating team operating under the Intergovernmental Authority on Development. This was after the rebel faction refused to be part of a negotiation that demanded that they sit not only with the government of South Sudan, but also other parties. These parties included the South Sudan civil society organizations, political parties, faith-based organizations, and the former political detainees. The chairperson of the Intergovernmental Organization on Development, Haile Mariam Desalen, says that they have managed to explain to the warring parties the importance of the multi-stakeholder negotiation system, and the parties have agreed to come back to the table. Now, obviously, in Africa, you, you know that uh, there are a number of conflicts which degenerated into armed conflict that has not ended uh, in a very short period of time. And obviously, the South Sudanese problem will continue to make the South Sudan as a failed state if the armed conflict continues on. No one will be a winner. Chairperson of IGAD, Haile Mariam Desalen, who is also the Prime Minister for Ethiopia, however, says that the mediation organization will not tolerate another instance of non-commitment from the warring parties of South Sudan. He says that maybe this time when they meet again might be the last chance for them to make progress or else IGAD may be forced to act against them. Uh, so we are looking into it 
and we are giving them a chance to go for a negotiated settlement. And if that, that doesn't happen, then obviously the region uh, will not sit idly to see uh, the process uh, continue on by killing the people. First of all, we believe that this problem can only be settled by a negotiated means. And armed struggle cannot bring any solution to this problem. The South Sudan government and the rebel faction led by former Vice President of the country, Riek Mashar, signed a cessation of hostilities agreement in January, which they are yet to implement six months later. In addition, a further agreement by the main principals, Riek Mashar and Salva Kiir, signed in May this year in Ethiopia, has not been honored. South Sudan has been suffering from internal conflict that began in December 2013, when a power struggle ensued between the rebel leader Riek Mashar and the government of the day led by President Salva Kiir. So far, thousands of South Sudanese have been killed in the conflict and more than 1.5 million others displaced by the conflict. Koletanjohi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. It is 8.12 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Today in 1996, going back in time, a hijacker holds an Algerian jetliner for five hours at an airport in western Algeria before he was, he is overpowered. All 232 people on board are unharmed. Africa Rise and Shine Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. The Lake Malawi border dispute between Malawi and Tanzania has taken a new twist with Tanzania's President Jakaya Kikwete ruling out the possibility of going to war with Lilongwe. Kikwete says his government will continue to use regular diplomatic channels and mediation to resolve any misunderstanding. George Mango reports from Plantar. According to the July 20 edition of Guardian on Sunday, Tanzanian President Yakaya Kikwete is quoted as saying that the simmering border dispute between the two countries would amicably be resolved through efforts of former President Joachim Chisano of Mozambique and South African retired President Tabombeki. Kikwete was addressing residents of Nyasa district at Mbamba Bay Stadium, according to the Dodomas media reports. He pledged peace and harmony to all Tanzanians and Malawi residents in particular, urging them to stop worrying and instead focus on their daily activities. The paper quotes Kikwete as indicating that he would speak to President Peter Mutarika as the relationship between Tanzania and Malawi had been improving during the tenure of former President Joyce Banda. Still, Kikwete admitted, according to the media, that the border dispute has not been solved and the government seeks to ask for a continuation of consultations by the two former presidents of Southern African Development Community SADC member countries to bring out a solution. Following this news, Malawians are divided on Kikwere's pronouncements. The Tanzania government could have considered the documents where they send the agreements. They should have considered those documents or they should have reviewed, but I don't think it's negotiable. My name is Thomas Kachere, uh, right here in Blanta. For peace and tranquility, we need to sit down. It's already there that people are discussing. We need to negotiate on the table. Otherwise, we'll bring confusion amongst the two countries. 
Malawi and Tanzania have been there as brothers and sisters. We all know that. Uh, so coming up with this issue to do with Lake Malawi borders or uh, to say demarcations, I don't think we should draw much into confusions. Otherwise, the issue is already at uh, the SADC where people are trying to make sure that it's one resolved at once and for all. So what I'm saying is we need to sit down and negotiate as uh, the former president did. My name is Memole Matumula. This story is negotiable because it involves two people. So to come up with a, a reasonable answer, it has to be negotiable for unity and peace. Because when one says this is mine and the other says this is mine, they will not agree. But when they sit down and discuss and come up with a reasonable answer, Regarding construction of a Lake Nyasa harbor and buying of a ship, Kikwete is quoted as saying his government has prepared 23 billion shillings to start buying ships for Lake Nyasa, Lake Victoria and Lake Tanganyika so as to sort out transportation problems in those areas. Tanzanian Foreign Minister Bernard Membe, according to the newspaper, said that the country is at peace and therefore people should proceed with fishing activities along the shores of Lake Nyasa without any worries. Member said this effort, the newspaper reports, would further be assisted by former presidents Shisano and Mbeki to reach positive results. Meanwhile, Malawi's Minister of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation spokesperson Kent Kalichero has said Lilongo is excited with the reports as it believes the dispute should be resolved through diplomatic channels. George Mohango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. The UN chief has strongly condemned an attack on a UN relief and works agency school in northern Gaza, where many deaths have been reported, including UN staff. Speaking in New York, Secretary General Bangi Moon spokesperson stressed they are still investigating the details around the attack and was unable to confirm casualty figures or a portion blame. Gazan health officials have indicated 15 people, mainly Palestinians, were killed in the attack and at least 150 injured. Sherwood Bar's piece reports. Today's attack underscores the imperative for the killing to stop. Firm talk from the UN after the third such incident on an UNRWA facility since Operation Protective Edge began. The Palestinian death toll now exceeds 700, while 35 Israelis, mainly soldiers, have been killed. We engaged the spokesperson on efforts to bring about a ceasefire. Listen to my exchange with Farhan Haq. Given the high-stakes uh, diplomacy we're seeing in the Middle East from the Secretary General, the shuttle diplomacy pushing for a ceasefire, what are his expectations of the Security Council and does he support the Jordanian draft that is currently under consideration? I, I wouldn't comment on, on uh, draft resolution as it proceeds. Of course, that, that's really a question for members of the Security Council to consider. You, sorry, you wouldn't comment on a draft resolution pushing for a ceasefire given that he's in the, in the region to well, do, accomplish just that? He, he is, he's, pushing, he's pushing for a ceasefire and he's working with different parties. We wouldn't comment on specific initiatives. And given uh, the sensitive uh, diplomatic work that he has to do, we're not really talking about specific proposals in detail in public. What he is pushing for has been very clear. He wants a halt to fighting. And ultimately, he, beyond that, he, then he wants to d- be able to deal with the root causes of the problem. So you don't see a role for the Security Council? I, I wouldn't have any comment uh, on that. It, it's really for the Security Council members to consider. And while reports from the region suggest the attack on UNRWA came from the Israeli side, the UN was unable to confirm this. 
yet reminding parties of the inviolability of its premises. There's quite a bit of uh, detail that we still need to know, and I don't want to get out so ahead that we uh, pronounce ourselves. At, at this stage, we do not know, and I cannot verify, who attacked the compound. Uh-huh. I'd like to be very clear on that. We, we do not know. Earlier this week, South Africa called on the Security Council to pass a resolution to stop the indiscriminate killings of civilians. Deputy Permanent Representative Doc Mashabane. We'd like to call on the Security Council to shoulder its shattered responsibility and adopt a resolution that sends an unequivocal and strong message that the indiscriminate and arbitrary killing of civilians from both sides has to stop and there will be account- that there will be accountability for the gross violations of international law in all its aspects. The Security Council cannot afford the luxury of permanent paralysis and inaction on this matter. The Jordanian draft resolution currently being negotiated expresses grave concern at the heavy civilian casualties among the Palestinian population and calls for an immediate ceasefire. I'm Shervin Bricebees in New York. In a significant step towards increasing treatment for HIV-AIDS, a Geneva-based organization, the Medicines Patent Pool, MPP, has announced a new licensing agreement with pharmaceutical company Gilead Sciences. Under the agreement, the MPP can sub-license the drug to generic drug companies in India and China who may manufacture and distribute it in more than 100 developing countries. For more on this, Elizabeth Mapari spoke to Catherine Moore from the Medicines Patent Pool. With the International AIDS Conference in Melbourne, the Medicine Patent Pool announced a new licensing agreement with Gilead Sciences for their new Phase three medicine called tenofovir alicetamide, and it's a promising new medicine currently in Phase three trials. And the license will allow manufacturers, generic manufacturers, to develop low-cost versions of Taft for about 112 countries that are home to more than 92% of people living with HIV in the developing world. What will be the specific roles of the two organizations under the agreement? Well, Gilead will license the medicine called TAF to the medicines patent pool. And MPP, in turn, will invite generic manufacturers in India and China specifically to apply for sub-licenses to make the low-cost versions of the medicine. And once TAF obtains regulatory approval, again, it is still in clinical trials, but once it attains regulatory approval in the United States, then generic manufacturers can begin producing TAF for these specific developing countries, so for the developing world. And in this way, we're really hoping to slash the timeline between drugs that are approved in the U.S. and Europe and then become generic versions in the developing world. That normally takes seven to nine years. But by licensing a drug still in development, then once we have the green light from regulatory authorities for the medicine to be distributed in the United States, and then we can also go through the production of generic versions for the hardest-hit countries in Africa and elsewhere. Now, we hear time and again about how the HIV field needs new drugs all the time due to the development of resistance and treatment failure. Does this drug have the potential to play a large role in the international community's efforts efforts to scale up treatment. We believe it does. Again, it's still in clinical trials, but what we've seen in the phase two trials is that 
the researchers are looking at a very low dose of the medicine, which is more than 10 times lower than the current tenofovir product that is recommended by the World Health Organization for people who are just starting HIV therapy. So this small dose appears to be as effective as the current TDF product. But it also suggests in lower doses, lower side effects, lower production costs, a greater ease in developing new fixed-dose combinations, which are two more drugs in a single pill. And it's currently being studied both for the treatment of HIV and chronic hepatitis. So you can imagine if it's a smaller dose and it's a lower cost to make that, that it would help in closing the treatment gap. Right now, we're looking at 35 million people that are living with HIV, but only 13 million have access to treatment. So it's these kind of drugs that we're hoping to really get out to the developing world as soon as possible. And finally there, how would you sum up the role that your organization has played in efforts to expand access to HIV treatment in the developing world? Well, I would say this agreement is very important, and it can mirror some of our other agreements, especially for Africa, because we're looking at 112 countries. More than half are 46 are African countries, and they're middle- and low-income countries with very high prevalence. So South Africa is included, Nigeria, Botswana. The new license could really help speed the delivery of a low-cost generics to these countries. And I do think we've played a role. We're a very young organization, as you know, from following us, we were only founded in 2010 by Unitaid to help increase access to HIV medicines um, in the developing world. But some of our earlier agreements were already seeing quite a bit of impact. So when I talked about tenofovir, we signed an agreement with Gilead, our very first agreement with a private entity in 2011 for their tenofovir, the tenofovir product I was talking about. And in the past few years, the price of that formulation has decreased 45 to 87%, and that's just the generic version. So you can imagine that as generic manufacturers start making these drugs through an NPP license, the price comes down quite a bit. And we've already distributed almost 3 million treatments of tenofovir just through generic partners. So that's generic tenofovir through the MTP. That was Catherine Moore, spokesperson for the medicines patent pool on the line from Geneva, Switzerland, talking to Elizabeth Mapari. Former U.S. President Bill Clinton says an AIDS-free generation is within reach if early treatment is provided to people infected with HIV and help scaled up for women and children. Addressing an international conference on AIDS in the Australian city of Melbourne, Clinton said much progress has been made since the world started fighting the AIDS epidemic. Now, our question to you today is, how can the fight against AIDS be won and who should be responsible for it? Email us on info at channelafrica.org. Send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Channel Africa 1. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
It is 8.26 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, new data shows that male circumcision contributes to the reduction in the number of new HIV infections in women. Previous studies have proven that circumcision is beneficial for men as it reduces HIV infection by 60%. The latest findings were announced at the International AIDS Conference in Melbourne following a study conducted in Orange Farm south of Johannesburg. Tabile Mapanga reports. The National Institute of Health and Medical Research in France and the National Institute for Communicable Diseases in South Africa have conducted a series of studies in 2007, 2010 and 2012 looking at about 4,500 women in Orange Farm south of Johannesburg. Previous studies conducted in 2002 in the same area confirmed that circumcision provides 60% protection against HIV infection in men. The recent study looked at the impact circumcision has on women. Kevin Jean is from the National Institute of Health and Medical Research in France. As for men, women were highly in favor of circumcision and women mostly preferred actually circumcised men. And among the sample of the 4,500 women uh, who had ever had sex, 30% of women reported uh, having had only circumcised partners. And then we looked at the prevalence of HIV among this group of women. 18% of these women having had only circumcised partners were infected with HIV. Among other women, this prevalence was 30%, so almost twice higher. There's an adult population of about 110,000 in Orange Farm with an estimated HIV prevalence of 20% in that group. John says their study looked at the HIV incidence or the rate of new HIV infections in women. When accounting for other factors such as age, we found that it corresponded to a reduction of 15% in HIV prevalence. We estimated that the rate of new infection was reduced by 17% among women having had only circumcised partners as compared to other sexually active women. And among younger age groups, it means among women aged 15 to 29, the reduction reached uh, almost 20%. Koli Buteleze from the Susonke Sex Worker Movement says she's very cautious of the latest findings. I know that if you're not circumcised, there are high risk and high chances of, of you getting infected of HIV. But from my perspective, it's something that I wouldn't guarantee because that would make women to be more vulnerable and advantage of men, they will take advantage of I had circumcised to that so. But it's something that I wouldn't trust and I wouldn't guarantee. So my suggestion would be let people condomize. 100% sure. Geleto Makufane from the Global Forum of Men Who Have Sex With Men and HIV has responded positively to the results. Saying I really welcome the, these findings. I think it's, it's an exciting time in terms of the biomedicine and it's an exciting time in terms of the tools we have to address the epidemic. The WHO and UNAIDS recommended circumcision as a complementary strategy in the prevention of HIV infection in men seven years ago. Voluntary medical male circumcision continues to be promoted and conducted in the area and throughout the country as part of HIV prevention programs. Tabila Mapanga is Melbourne, Australia. It is 8.30 Central African time and our headlines are up next with Anne Musa. In the headlines, France sends a military unit to secure the site of the wreckage of an Air Algeria flight carrying 110 passengers and six crew members. 
More bodies and a piece of the fuselage of a Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 have been found in a wooden area at the crash site in Ukraine. And Mali's government and drag-led rebels sign an agreement for a roadmap towards securing a broader peace deal. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you. And now going back in time today in 2000, an Air France Concorde traveling to New York crashes into a hotel outside Paris shortly after takeoff, killing 113 people. John Pullman has more. Investigators are hoping that the flight recorders they've recovered from the Air France Concorde that came down outside Paris will help explain what caused the crash. All 109 people on board and four on the ground are now known to have died when the Concorde crashed within minutes of takeoff from Charles de Gaulle Airport. Pilot Sid here described what he saw. There's four engines on the Concorde and uh, the left side, number one and number two engines, one of those obviously had a catastrophic failure because trailing flames 200 to 300 feet behind the airplane it probably wiped out the other engine next to it so the airplane was in uh, trying to climb on only two out of four engines and he kept trying to get the nose up to gain altitude which eventually caused a stall and those pitched straight up in the air and uh, the airplane just started rolling over and backsliding down toward the ground it was a sickening sight and when it hit mm. just a huge fireball that's pilot Sid here who witnessed the Air France Concorde crash shortly after takeoff from Charles de Gaulle Airport outside Paris. That was John Perlman ending that report. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Europe has been called to action to stop the rise of people dying at sea seeking refuge from countries torn by conflict like Syria, Mali, Libya or insecurity like Somalia. The UN Refugee Agency issued a statement in Geneva after more than 260 people died crossing or went missing in the Mediterranean in the last 10 days alone. The refugees and migrants travel in unseaworthy and overcrowded dinghies packed into a few meters of space without food, water or life jackets. An estimated 800 refugees and migrants have died at sea so far this year. Speaking to Patrick Maigua, Carlotta Sami, UNHCR spokesperson in Lampedusa, Italy, where most of the asylum seekers land, describes the situation as tragic. The stories are increasingly tragic because the traffickers are really using inhuman means to push asylum seekers and migrants on these uh, boats, making the, the trip across the Mediterranean risky and even more risky because they are basically making also distinction between Africans and Syrians and they are pushing, for example, uh, sub-Saharan Africans in the hold where they cannot breathe even, and they are throwing people uh, in the water uh, when there are, like, clashes on the boat because people feel that uh, they are about to die. 
Now, UNHCR is asking uh, governments to step up efforts to help these people. What kind of assistance can they be given? First of all, search and rescue should be further prioritized, should be extended, should become a European operation and, and extended across all the Mediterranean, and then more legal alternatives should be offered. Uh, resettlement, of course, uh, humanitarian admission, but should be found even new measures that haven't been found already, and all the governments should be called for their responsibility to provide legal alternatives. A lot of governments have been saying most of these people who are crossing the Mediterranean are uh, economic migrants. How do you distinguish between economic migrants and people who are genuinely seeking uh, asylum? Most of these people are coming from countries that are living or uh, in a war like Syria or under a dictatorship like Eritrea or in a, in a situation where they can, be, they can suffer of terrorist attacks like Somalia, so the situation is really dire for them. So it's, uh, there are many cases in, in which it is very clear they are coming from refugee countries. What about getting hold of the situation in the countries of origin, clamping down on the smugglers' uh, routes? First of all, it's, uh, uh, it's very important to uh, control and to fight against uh, the trafficking of, of human beings, This is very important, of course, and it is also very important that the international community do much more than they have done to end uh, terrible and tragic conflicts like like the Syrian one. 51 million of refugees only in 2013, a sharp increase, and the the worst situation since uh, World War II. So this means that there is a big gap in terms of capacity to resolve conflicts around the world. There has been concern about the overcrowding in some of these reception centers, that there is hardly any effort to make these uh, places comfortable for those who have crossed the Mediterranean Sea. The situation is very difficult, in particular of countries like Italy, that are under a very strong pressure because every day thousands and thousands of refugees are arriving uh, on the coast. So, of course, it should be done whatever possible to ensure the better standards, the best standards to refugees. And uh, today we have called also other governments in Europe to support this effort. That was Carlotta Sami, UNHCR spokesperson in Lampedusa, Italy, talking to UN Radio's Patrick Maigua. Most people in countries that have been doing steadily better in human development, but the progress has been uneven, a new UN report has found. Human development tracks progress on people's ability to get an education, to be healthy, to have a reasonable standard of life and to be safe, the report says. But it's also a matter of how secure the achievements are, whether conditions are sufficient to maintain the progress. The 2014 UN Development Programme report titled Reducing Vulnerabilities and Building Resilience was released yesterday. The report their special attention to people who are more vulnerable than others because they have been excluded, marginalized or discriminated against. For more on this, UN Radio's Elizabeth Phillips spoke to 
Khaled Malik, leader, lead author of the UN Development Programme report. If we take certain steps and certain policies, uh, things can improve. That this is not intrinsic that the way life has to be. There's a very basic argument in the report, which is that we are concerned not only about progress, but we should also be concerned about how secure the progress is. And it has two basic propositions. One is that uh, this whole notion of vulnerability is very much a function of capabilities in health and education, personal security, and the context you, you belong to in a society. The argument being made in the report is that this is very much dependent on policies and social institutions. So if you have good policies, you actually make a big difference. Can you outline which groups typically are the vulnerable and what are the push-pull factors? Traditionally, vulnerability is seen as relation to specific risks, disasters, uh, conflict. We've taken a broader perspective, a human development perspective, and tried to understand the underlying drivers of vulnerability. If you're better educated, you're healthier, have more resources, you can deal with the shocks better. But if you are a minority, even if you're better educated in a majority-dominated country, you still feel vulnerable. So we've tried to trace these things in a deeper context and try to argue that most people can feel vulnerable at different stages and different contexts. For instance, we've introduced the notion of life capabilities and life vulnerabilities, meaning that uh, at different stages of your life, when you're a child or you're youth or adult, you have different challenges. And depending on how society responds to that, how policies uh, take that into account, can make a big difference. For instance, uh, the nurture and nutrition for young children, even up to the age of three, can actually predict heart disease in adults over 60. So it's hugely important. Yet most budgets in the world put very little money in the early period of one's life. They actually grow up. There are a few good examples like Sweden, but the argument is not only we are talking about level of budgets, but also the timing of budgets. And therefore the, the report tries to dig into these things in much more uh, detail and try to understand what are the innate drivers of vulnerability. Can you share some examples of specific countries that have made significant development gains but are beginning to slide backwards? Well, the report actually takes a macro view first and highlights that progress in human development is beginning to slow down across the board. This is for high human development countries, this is for low human development countries, the middle as well. And for the first time in the 20 plus years we've been tracking countries in terms of how well they're doing in human development, three countries, for instance, in, in Europe are actually showing a reversal in human development gains. This had never happened before. This is a, a high human development category. Uh, at the same time, you also see that uh, in the middle part particularly, there's been quite a big movement of some countries doing better than others. And that's partly connected to data revision, but a lot is connected to how well these countries have dealt with the, the great recession, the great crisis which has been still engulfing the world. Given the incidence of risk and vulnerability, which regions are performing best in development? It's very difficult to say which region is doing better. Rather, there are some countries who have done better, but the emphasis in the report is on what can be done to 
uh, strengthen the innate uh, abilities of uh, societies and individuals do better. And it highlights uh, four or five very key uh, uh, policy measures. The first one being uh, very much uh, universal access to basic social services. The argument has always been that you have to be rich before you can afford that. And we actually try to uh, demolish that straw uh, uh, person because historic evidence shows that many countries who did who took that route did that at per capita income levels which are actually lower than what uh, South Asia has today. We've also gone into uh, reviving the notion of full employment, which was a big uh, objective in the 50s and 60s, and now and somehow disappeared for many decades. And we want to reinvest and, re and, and encourage that whole uh, focus on full employment because uh, jobs are far more important than wages are secure from it. Uh, high levels of employment are related to low levels of violence, um, social cohesion, all kinds of things make societies more robust. And we also take an argument that there are certain things you can do directly in terms of improving the norms in society uh, of discrimination, of inequality, and improving the legal basis so that citizens, whether they're minorities or majorities, can have equal rights and equal access to social services. That was Khaled Malik, lead author of the UN Development Programme report, speaking to UN Radio's Elizabeth Philip. Going back in time today to 2008, US President George W. Bush signs an executive order to expand sanctions against individuals and organizations in Zimbabwe associated with the regime of President Robert Mugabe. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Economics update up next with Tabiso Lehoku. Thanks, Lulu. The Metal Workers Union of South Africa, NUMSA, is expected to announce today where it stands regarding a revised wage offer by the Steel and Engineering Industry Federation of Southern Africa. The announcement is positive, or rather, if positive, will end the three-week strike by more than 200,000 workers. The Steel and Engineering Industry has accepted a settlement proposal by Labour Minister Mildred Oliphant to increase wages of the lowest employment grades by 10% over the next three years. Irvin Jim is NUMSA's General Secretary. As an NEC, we have no right to take decisions on behalf of our members. We have sanctioned all our structures to go back, uh, started yesterday and today. They are basically giving feedback to our members, and our members are debating that offer. This afternoon, we will then receive the feedback, and on the basis of what our members are saying, we will then define a way forward. South African President Jacob Zuma says that the establishment of the BRICS New Development Bank is a forward step 
for South Africa and the continent. He says the bank is a groundbreaking initiative by the developing world, the first of its kind. Zuma was replying to a debate on his budget speech in Parliament. The BRICS Bank's Africa Regional Centre will be established concurrently with the headquarters in Shanghai, in China. Ntanta Masangu reports. BRICS, comprising of Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa, announced the establishment of the new development bank with its headquarters to be in Shanghai earlier this month. The leaders of the five BRICS countries signed a deal to create a new $100 billion development bank and emergency reserve fund. The capital for the bank will be split equally among the five participating countries. The Common Market for Eastern and Southern Africa's Director for Infrastructure, Abu Sufyan Dafala, says that the aviation industry players should take advantage of growing demand for air transport to grow their operations and create jobs for the youth. Dafala was speaking at the recently concluded Comesa Aviation Summit in the Rwandan capital, Kigali. He says as more African economies become stronger, air transport will increasingly become popular among business people and other travellers. He says it is therefore imperative for regional airlines to prepare for this and be part of this growth. Dafala, however, noted that there was still a lack of strong coordination in the industry, which he said was affecting the sector's progress. The International Monetary Fund has chopped its 2014 forecast for global economic growth to take into account weaknesses early in the year in the United States and China, the world's two biggest economies. The IMF warns that only some of the factors leading to the reduction were temporary and says richer nations in particular face the risk of economic stagnation unless they do more to boost growth through deeper reforms. In an update to its World Economic Outlook report, the IMF says the global economy should expand 3.04% this year, 0.3%, points below what it predicted in April. As some carbon, or rather, cotton farmers branch out into sisal farming, the Tanzanian Cotton Board has assured farmers that it has no problem with their multitasking, considering that it is the government's intention to see the livelihoods of the people improved. The board says although the situation could be a threat, farmers have the right to choose the type of crop they want to grow. Tanzania Cotton Board's remarks followed a recent study which indicates the sisal price has escalated by more than 45%, making the fibre the only product in the country that has recorded a remarkable progress within a short period of time. Indicators at this hour, the US dollar trades at 10.51 South African rands, 8.65 Botswana Pulas, 6.08 Zambian Kwachas, 0.58 British Pound, 0.73 to the Euro. Gold one two nine one dollars, platinum one four six four dollars an ounce, brand crude one zero seven one three cents a barrel. Economic update. Thank you, Tabi. So, Msibudi Makura up next with the sports update.
Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans. And starting off with Commonwealth Game News, Sia Bulela Mabula won bronze in judo on Thursday evening, beating India's Manjit Nandal in the 66-kilogram division to earn Team South Africa its second medal at the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, Scotland. Nandal received judo in 17 seconds before both competitors were warned in the 38th second. The bout continued with Nandal getting his third warning and Mabulu managing to hold on for victory despite Ishido was just over a minute remaining. Earlier, Richard Murray won South Africa's first medal of the Games when he finished third in the men's triathlon to claim bronze behind England's Brownlee brothers. In other Commonwealth game news, South Africa's women's hockey team kicked off their campaign with a 60-0 victory over Trinidad and Tobago at the Glasgow National Stadium. Meanwhile, England lead the medals table with six gold, while Australia followed closely behind with five gold medals. Altogether, 20 gold medals in sports, including triathlon, swimming, track, cycling, as well as judo, were handed out in the Scottish city of Glasgow on the first day of the competition. Meanwhile, Roland Schumann and Charlotte Clow look set for a medal hole in Friday night's 50-meter butterfly final. Schumann won the first heat in 23.25 seconds, stepping up the intensity from the Thursday's morning's heats. Meanwhile, Leclerc says Leclerc had this to say about tonight's final. I don't want to say I can win the 50, but uh, I believe I can get a medal. I really do. Uh, you know, obviously it's going to be tough between Ben and Roland on my right and left, but... You know, I know when the final comes, I'll be ready. On to football news. Acting president of the Nigerian Football Federation, Mike Ome, insists that Stephen Keshi would be persuaded to stay on as coach of the Super Eagles. Keshi's contract with the NFF elapsed after the 2014 FIFA World Cup in Brazil, with reports claiming that he was set to take over as coach of South Africa's national Mains team. Ume, who took over the reins of the NFF in acting capacity following the impeachment of former President Amanu Megare on Thursday, believes Keshi would be convinced to stay on as Nigeria's head coach. The NFF chief added that he was aware of speculations linking Keshi to the vacant coaching post in South Africa, while adding that no stone will be left unturned to dissuade Keshi from jumping ship. On to cricket news. It's lunchtime on the second day of the second test and final test between South Africa and Sri Lanka. One wicket has fallen this morning. That was that of Mawela J. Warden, who was run out for 165 runs. The score is currently 395 for the last of six wickets. And finally, in athletics news, Kenya has gone on the top of the medal standings with two days before the World Junior Athletics Championships conclude in the United States on Sunday. Our correspondent Geshem Yati filed this report. The Kenyan athletics team made a good day yesterday, winning five medals. Margaret Wambui won gold in the women's 800 meters. Lillian Rangiruku and Valentine Maiteiko took silver and bronze in the 3,000 meters. Jonathan Sawe snatched gold in the men's 1500 meters and Hilary Ngetichi earned himself a bronze medal. The Kenyans shot to the top of the medal standings with a total of eight medals, two gold, two silver and four bronze. The USA team are second with six medals and Great Britain third with three, followed by Russia with two. Ethiopia also have two medals and Djibouti won their first medal in the men's 1500 meters yesterday. The medals table is expected to change with two more days of competition left. 
Well, those are your sports news at the Sawa. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, former M23 rebels set to return to the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan peace talks are due to resume next week. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzo Ramagaza, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info.channelafrica.co.za Tweet us and follow us on Twitter at Rise Africa or send us an SMS to plus 2782 Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is The Muffins with a track titled Kumbule Kaya. Zoom is over, it's the end of the night.